Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Lou Fulton, who's co-director of the Steps for Sustainable Transportation Energy Pathways program within the Institute of Transportation Studies at the University of California at Davis. Welcome to the program, Lou. Good morning, Tammy. So um, let me read a little bit about your biography uh, for folks who may not be familiar with you. So Lou has worked internationally in the field of transport, energy, environment analysis, and policy development for over 20 years. Uh, Before he was at the STEPS program, um, he was with the um, International Energy Agency. Uh, He was there from 2007 to 2012, and he was a senior transport specialist, as well as division head for energy technology policy during 2011 and 2012. He returned to the IEA uh, in 2007 after working there originally from 1999 to 2005. During 2006-2007, he worked in Kenya with the United Nations Environment Program, developing and implementing GEF-funded sustainable transport projects around the world. And during the 1990s, he also worked at the U.S. Department of Energy and taught at the Independent University of Bangladesh and the University of Maryland. So in the STEPS program, he helped lead a range of research activities around new vehicle technologies and new fuels and how these can gain rapid acceptance in the market. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit about today. So I want to talk about some work that Lou has been doing called the Three Revolutions in Urban Transportation. And then I've got some other questions um, in the field of fuels and transport that I want to ask as well. So, Lou, we will get right into it. So, with the Three Revolutions in Urban Transportation, that was a study that's been very integrally a part of that was released last year. And I want to just read a quote Uh, from that study and then ask you a bunch of questions, not all at once, hopefully. You and the team said in that study that, quote, our central finding is that while vehicle electrification and automation may produce potentially important benefits without a corresponding shift towards shared mobility and greater use of transit and active transport, these two revolutions could significantly increase congestion and urban sprawl while also increasing the likelihood of missing climate targets. In contrast, by encouraging a large increase in trip sharing, transit use, and active transport through policies that support compact, mixed-use development, cities worldwide could save an estimated $5 trillion annually by 2050 while improving livability and increasing the likelihood of meeting climate change targets. Just to start, I mean, one of the the themes or one of the the taglines around this whole work is the quote, sharing is caring. (laughs) It kind of sums up the Uh the quote I just read. And as I see it, you know, this is a real challenge in the United States and, and also other countries because, as you very well know, most people prefer private transport, you know, whether it's they're in their Uber or they're in their own private vehicle. So, Basically, to make this vision of three revolutions uh, happen, you know, how do we basically get people to, you know, care? I mean, how do we make get people to make that behavior shift and overcome their own uh, inertia? I mean, isn't that one of, you know, aside from the three revolutions, 
isn't that one of the greatest challenges that you see in decarbonizing transport in general? So how, how do you respond to that? Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, absolutely correct. This is not uh, a natural trend at all to, to think about people sharing rides more and sort of getting out of their, car, their own cars more. There is some reason to believe that we may find the Uber-type services, what we call mobility as a service, uh, more and more compelling as time goes on, partly because if we automate them, if we go to driverless uh, commercial services, they will become pretty cheap. And if they're electric, they'll, they'll become even cheaper. So there's plenty of projections, including some that I'm working on, that indicate that uh, we may eventually be able to, you know, call for our ride to come get us and take us across town and go the 10 miles uh, to get where we're going. And it might only be a couple of dollars, two, three dollars compared to maybe 10 to 15 right now. That will be a different world where uh, now we have door-to-door service, commercial service, very cheap. And that may get us out of our own car. Uh, may, may not. It depend, it'll depend a lot on, on some of the details and it'll depend on the person probably. But will we have any incentive to share those rides? And it is true that uh, we, we found through the scenarios that we've done and looking at uh, traffic patterns, and this is a fairly high-level study. We weren't doing detailed urban spatial analysis, but it was clear enough that mm-hmm. it's almost basic arithmetic that if you can have trips with two to three people sharing a ride, it's far fewer cars out there than if everybody's in their own uh, separate ride. And that turned out to be the critical piece in the United States, anyway, to cut traffic and to cut the number of cars out there. And obviously, there's not that much difference between us all driving around in our own car alone, single occupant, and taking a service as a single occupant. And we may even find that when we don't have to drive the car, we don't mind being in the car as much, and and we're willing to take even longer trips because we're doing other things. So that is where, in, in the scenarios we've created, we you know, hypothesize that uh, we may end up living farther away, we may get more sprawl, and all of that just contributes to even more traffic. And then the the idea that automated vehicles will be somehow more space efficient, they might, you know, they, they cooperate in a sense, the vehicles cooperate on the roads better than, than it happens mm-hmm. today with fewer accidents. So there are some reasons to believe that traffic could improve, but this could easily be overwhelmed by additional driving. Uh, it's just it's just hard to know how it'll play out. But in any case, yes, we we found that you need to do something other than single occupant vehicle travel if you're going to deal with congestion and if you want, you know, what you might call livable cities. If you want cities that are pedestrian oriented and people oriented and not all about cars, but it is not easy to get there. And we're we're I think just at a an early phase collectively. Uh, people who think about this uh, in terms of how. Can you bring that world about? How can you encourage uh, sharing and and, uh, use of mass transit and those sorts of things beyond what we have today? It's kind of interesting as you were talking. I was sitting here thinking about, you know, my own um, experience, you know, and I, you know, you have the option right now. You can share an Uber, you know, you can select that. And, you know, and I don't and I don't do that. I, I actually go, um, <laughs> you know, I might be shamed on this, but, you know, I actually do a lot of rides or most rides by myself. And I think a, a large part of this is, you know, in terms of getting at pe- people's behavior is getting them to trust. You know, there's a there's a trust issue, you know, in terms of, 
okay, is this going to get me from point A to point B quickly? Um, and, and if I get in this car, who am I getting in in this car with? So, you know, you've got to trust that process. Then you've got to trust the, the, the people in the car. Um, and, um, you know, that's, I think that's really a big, and then, you, and then in terms of autonomous, you know, connected uh, vehicles, it's also then it's trusting the technology, you know, so it seems like trust is really kind of, I think, for, for people, or at least in my own experience, but I can't be the only person out there, you know, in this boat. It seems like, you know, in terms of changing behavior, it's, you know, maybe creating some kind of assurance and trust out there, you know, in, in all of those factors. I don't know if you have a thought about that. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. This is not something we can expect people to just want to do. There there, there are social people who like sharing rides with strangers, but uh, <laughs> it's not something that you really can expect, you know, the mass of society to want to do. Uh, and, and then, as you said, there's all these issues. Uh, is it going to make my trip longer? And then are they going to take me out of the way I want to go? And so I don't expect too much uh, of, of people behaving in a, a kind of uh, kind way to society. You don't need <laughs> because you're because you're being nice or something. You do them because it works for you. I think right now, it, of course, we don't even have the, the shared or the pooled ride option for, let's say, Uber or Lyft or those kinds of companies everywhere uh, that tends to be mm-hmm. available in big cities. I live in a small town of Davis, California. We don't even have it where I live. So. That's part of it is how much the, do these kind of services spread and then what are the incentives to do it? And I, and the main incentive is financial, right? You can, say in San Francisco, you can maybe save $5 by, by doing a pooled ride instead of an individual ride. Uh, and is that enough to get a lot of people to do this? And I, I think it's going to depend a lot on the location. And if, if we eventually have driverless cars, once again, these trips get a lot cheaper that actually takes away a lot of the incentive to try to save the money. You, you know, instead of a saving $5, let's say a $10 trip instead of a $15 trip, now maybe you're only saving a dollar. It's a $2 trip instead of a $3 trip. So that mm-hmm. actually, you know, kind of undermines the whole pooling concept if we have a very yeah. cheap services. So it comes down to how badly does society want to make this happen? How badly do we want to get vehicles off the road? And if if that's a major objective, we're going to have to probably have policies that really push that. And, and there are a few different kinds of things uh, we could talk about that, that are possible. None of mm-hmm. them are easy, but the most obvious approach is pricing, where you might yeah. have a tax on, on these services and um, you know raise that price so that you get a bigger discount if you share the ride. You could even have some way to measure how many people are in the car and, and have pricing uh, based on I mean, of course, services do that pricing right now, but you could even overlay some kind of tax system that encourages or, or spreads the cost even farther between a pooled trip and an individual trip. But none of these are politically easy. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we're talking about a country, if we're just talking about the, the United States, I mean, you know, we don't even have the political will to do anything on the gas tax. You know, meanwhile, our bridges are literally, you know, our bridges and our infrastructure and, and even future infrastructure that would enable, you know, this, this kind of vision um, that's suggested in the, in the three uh, revolutions. I mean, we, we don't even have the political will to do that. I mean, you know, frankly, we don't even have the political will to pass a budget, but that's another story. Um, you know, yeah, that's another a, story entirely. 
Yeah, we do have a certain situation nationally right now. So that is one piece of it. Uh, a lot of what you would need to do happens at the state and local level, I guess, maybe fortunately. That's true. Uh, That's but true. I, mm-hmm. I do think, yeah, um, fiscal policy could be state level. It's hard for cities to do a lot of fiscal policy, but they could. They could do road pricing and, in you know, or they could do, uh, like London has done the cordon pricing zones. Um, so yeah, right. there's, you know, you pay a fair bit. I think it's 15 pounds now if you want to drive into central London. So there are ways to do that. You can also restrict access for vehicles that, that are the wrong kind of vehicle, whether it's, uh, you know, you could do it where non-electric vehicles can't go into certain zones or can't go on some roads. You could, and we have high occupancy vehicle lanes, right? So you can do it based on right. occupancy. Um, it's a bit of a question how you enforce some things. If you wanted to make it the whole center district, the uh, business center business district as has to be pooled to get in there, you've got to have a way to enforce that. But um, so there are different ways that cities can come at this. And I do think cities are really still very progressive and very interested mm-hmm. in, you know, it's, it's, it's where the benefits are going to be. It's about city life. And there's also kind of a competition between cities and between mayors that you see certain innovative things happen in one place and they tend to spread. So I'm much more hopeful that we could have the kinds of, of creative policies uh, at the city level that help move us toward more sustainable systems. You know, that's one of the things, uh, trends that I've been researching and, and writing about is there does seem to be, you know, a shift going on. I mean, obviously, there's always been, you know, uh, state or provincial and, and you know, uh, city regulation of different aspects, the, the transport space, both private and public. But one thing that I really noticed, um, which um, is relevant to, to the discussion, is there does seem to be kind of a shift in not a, not necessarily a power shift because it's not like you know federal or national governments are, are losing authority, but there does seem to be a lot more activity, interest, activism, you know, planning, you know, moving toward implementation, you know, to do something on transport, whether that is developing these zones like you talked about uh, in London to, you know, outright banning of, of vehicles, you know, that is a thing now, <laughs> you know, in some cities around the world, it does seem to be, you know, to just even put, putting into place, you know, the infrastructure, you know, to support the growing electric vehicle market, both for, for the for city fleets and also for, uh, for the public. So there does seem to be a lot more focus on transport and a lot more activity um, in transport you know, at the city level, it's interesting. Um, Do you find that that's sort of the case as well? In in other words, you know, if we're talking about Paris Agreement and meeting 2C and decarbonizing transport and addressing air pollution and addressing traffic congestion, you know, it's, I almost see that as, you know, the cities are going to carry the water on that largely rather than uh, national governments. And that's kind of, Interesting, I think, if you're um, an oil company or an auto company or, you know, you're a company that's used to maybe dealing with more state and national level issues. So there does seem to be mm-hmm. kind of a shift. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, cities are semi-panicked about the changes that are coming. And, you know, they're all grappling with traffic issues already. And now we we have the electric vehicles coming. Uh, it's you know it's really hard to tell how fast or or how much that's going to uh, to happen, but it could happen quickly. You know, there's 
tipping points happen. And I'm beginning to think that sometime in the next, well, five to 10 years, we may suddenly find that fairly mass market uh, shift happens and, and people really go all in on electric vehicles. And cities and, and, and states are very worried about the recharging infrastructure. And rightly so, it's very good that there's a lot of planning action going on and there's a lot of issues. You know, it's very early days for electric vehicles, but there's already places where there's the charging systems are not good enough or people can't rely on it. So, you know, there's been a kind of a shift from range anxiety to charging anxiety in, among the public who own those vehicles. So it's up to the governments to make sure that that rollout happens uh, efficiently and, and adequately. So that's there's a lot of attention on that. I think there's also this panic about the third revolution, the automation revolution, which hasn't really even begun yet. And yet it could happen fast enough that it catches everybody off guard. And so I think cities are trying to avoid being caught off guard and they're trying to understand what dynamics automated driverless cars might bring in to cities. And there's, you know, there's all kinds of things that are likely to change and it's so hard to predict. So they're really grappling with those things. I mean, for one one example on the automated vehicle side is that curb access becomes a big deal. It's all pick up, pickups and drop-offs. It's, it's already an issue with Uber and Lyft, but if we're all doing this kind of door-to-door service, even if it's our own car and then you send the car off somewhere else to park or to do another job of some kind, then it's just about cars piling up at the curb and letting people in and out. And we also have delivery happening that way, and we're seeing more and more double parking in cities in the last few years. So that's a bad trend. You know, there's these things happening that are very hard to to predict what, you know, how they'll play out. And so cities are trying to figure that out. So I think the good news is it causes cities to be paying a lot more attention to their entire transportation systems than, than maybe they were. And, um, and you know, trying to not get caught off guard. Yeah, I would imagine that one of the issues that, that, that cities have as well is, I mean, you know, because the study talks about, you know, um, active transport, um, mixed use development. I mean, there, there are cities, especially in the U.S., you know, they're just really not set up and developed in that way currently. And so in order to, I mean, it, it's not just, you know, remaking or rethinking our, our a city's transport system and how that all works, but we're talking about remaking in some cases for some cities, remaking transport you know, or remaking the city um, entirely. And um, I would imagine <laughs> from a budgetary standpoint, I mean, you know, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a pretty tall order. Yeah, for sure. And it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's ironic that when we do the, so we included a cost analysis in this study. And when we did the bean counting, so we were including all the urban areas say in the United States and adding up what we thought would be the net effects if you had this big shift toward uh, the shared mobility and automated vehicles. And so we were tracking going out to 2030 and actually going all the way out to 2050 in these scenarios. If people were buying these cars instead of those cars and and they're electric, so they, they cost a different amount to operate and they're running on electricity. But we also looked at for example, the savings that cities could uh, enjoy in terms of having to build and, and maintain fewer parking structures and that you could repurpose those. So we, it is kind of a rough calculation, but we found that the, the three revolution scenario where you've got all these changes happening, it, there's a lot of savings associated with that. You have far fewer cars hmm. and some of them are private savings and some of them are public savings or uh, government, you know, re- uh, mm-hmm. expenditure savings, right. or tax, taxpayer savings. 
but even though that scenario is in a way cheaper, it doesn't make it more likely. And in, in fact, actually, probably cities have a, a certain outlay that they have to do to make this happen. There's that, you know, infrastructure investment that happens up front. And that's hard. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. where cities are going to find the revenues to do that. So they have to be creative. They have to figure out mm-hmm. uh, probably, you know, the, the advantage of pricing is that you can create new revenue streams and cities are grappling right now with the fact that, and, and states as well, and, and the national government are grappling with the fact that fuel tax revenues are dropping. And uh, because, uh, you know, gasoline demand has been flat or dropping, and they're looking for new revenue sources anyway, or at least trying to maintain the, the revenues that they've had. And California, for example, just passed a, a new uh, 10 cent increase in the gasoline tax, which isn't that popular, but it's kind of the minimum just to try to avoid having potholes everywhere in the whole state. So yeah. that's happening. And I think it's it creates an opportunity to be creative about that revenue raising process. And so the the walks among us like me are thinking about, well, we shift away from fuel pricing where the especially if we're shifting away from gasoline to electricity, that you know, we'd have to start taxing electricity at the same level to preserve the revenues. But the clearer path is to start pricing the vehicle kilometers, vehicle miles of travel. And you can theoretically do it in real time so that depending on the time of day, depending on where you are, depending on the kind of vehicle you have and how you know, efficient it is, you could, you could bring in a CO2 factor for that vehicle, that the charge would be different. And that is clearly could raise all kinds of new revenues, but then it just brings you right back to whether that's going to be politically feasible and whether the taxpayers will... Uh, embrace anything like that. It's totally different than than the experience that Americans have. Apart from toll highways, we have some experience with that. But the idea that you get in your car and you know you're paying for every every mile you drive, it's it's pretty different, and it it definitely <laughs> is not consistent with the idea that our driving should somehow be kind of free. And I think that's yeah. that's coming. That that kind of clash is coming and we'll see if there are cities that overcome that. I think we're going to see cities overcoming that around the world. I actually think this is a country where it's harder to implement those things than in many other countries. Yeah, I agree. I agree because we have the, you know, luxury in some sense, you know, not every area of the country, but, you know, it's, we don't feel, I think as a people you know, that we, you know, we should just have air quality. You know, we have night, we have good air quality in most parts of the country, in many parts of the country. And congestion's just kind of like, you know, the cost of doing business, so to speak. There's sort of that that approach. No one's really I think it's it's older older generations maybe think about it differently than younger generations. Those are the people more well likely to want to get in a car and meet people. You know, I guess I'm kind of antisocial. But well, um, that's right. It's, you know, you're used to, right? It's young people maybe <laughs> yeah, aren't exactly. as as they're, addicted they're not to, to their cars, right? Exactly, exactly. It's so you know, someone in my generation or a baby boomer, it's like, well, traffic's just kind of the cost of doing business. You know, a, a millennial or a Gen X or a Gen Z would say, "Well, why am I wasting my time?" You know, like that. You know, so you know they're more, much more willing, I think, to push the boundaries and ask questions than the older generation. Older generation, but you know, we have the luxuries in this country that other countries do not have. Vis-a-vis, you know, um, air pollution. You know, just coming right to the top of my mind. I mean, you know, in other countries, it is a public health 
emergency in most places in this country. You know, it's not. And I think that, um, and I think there's much more, there's other, of course, there's other factors going on as well. I mean, I think there's more out in the public domain about, you know, the public health impact, you know, of the internal combustion engine vehicle, you know, so we're learning more and more and more about the health impacts of uh, particulate matter or nitrogen oxides, um, you know, volatile organic compounds, so on and so forth. And I think this country is kind of like, well, we got clean air, it's fine. <laughs> you know, um, you uh-huh. know, they're just right, not right. thinking in that way. I think in California, we still have two, the, the two worst air quotes. So that's where I am. And it's yeah. Uh, yeah. still mm-hmm. at the top of the top of people's minds here. We have the two worst air quality districts in the country still. California's made incredible strides, but it's not, uh, you know, not perfect. And actually, what's interesting here is that in the last few years, it's evolved into a social justice issue because you have a exactly. lot of these, the, the worst air quality districts are poorer districts. And uh, so that has really elevated the issue in a new way. So that's interesting. But yes, that's unusual. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rest of the country is more or less doing fine. But as you say, other countries, uh, especially in Asia and Latin America, there are air quality crises that uh, drive this thing. And I think electric vehicles are going to be very interesting in that regard because they really are zero emission in the city. It depends a little bit how you're generating the electricity and where you're, you know, if if you're India and it is still a coal-fired dominated country, where are those coal plants and and to what extent, same with China, to what extent are they contributing to air quality uh, issues? But in any case, that's a key driver that we tend not to have in this country. So what are the drivers? What are the reasons why we even care about this topic? Well, the big social issue, I think, is climate, and, and many mm-hmm. people are concerned about it. And so you, you do see a lot of people behaving and making choices that reflect that concern. But it's not quite in the mass, you know, it's not in our mass consciousness at this point. And so ultimately, it, well, I mean, if there's no... If there were no problems, we wouldn't need to solve anything. But I think that the, the point of the three revolutions study is to say you can actually go a long way to solving air quality and even climate through electrification, at least in terms of cities and, and how we move around cities. Electrification of vehicles does you know, help a lot. It depends on the climate side what your generation system is and how that evolves. But the cities themselves and the way that we live in those cities and the way that we move around and what that means for other other aspects of life in the cities you know the the electric vehicles and the automated vehicles are just not clearly going to give us major benefits it it, it could end up being more car dominated than ever so this mm-hmm. idea of clean congestion has come up right so still congested but cleaner but, you know, is that, is that good enough? And I think that's where it comes down to we have to have a vision for what our cities are going to look like and, and how we want to live in them and, and the role of cars. And I think we often do have a shared vision of sort of defanging the automobile and making more public space. We talk about complete streets now where we uh, limit the access for automobiles and we make them much more interesting places to be. And I think it it just comes down to, are we visionary enough and are we acting on those visions and, and are cities being proactive? And I think ultimately it's up to the public to support those kinds of things where we de-emphasize the automobile and we, and we you know, encourage our, ourselves to move around in other ways as well. 
and take advantage of the, the great thing about automation is how we will be able to get rid of a lot of the cars that are, are, are lining our streets right now. It's amazing how we kind of tolerate that we use so much public space for parking of private cars and then all the parking lots. We will be able to cut way back on that if we uh, are sharing and uh, to some extent if we're using commercial services instead of driving our own cars because those commercial services will, those cars will be moving around all day long. They won't have to park anywhere near as much. So the the parking's a very interesting part of this that you should have far yeah. fewer cars need far less parking, and it gives you great new opportunities for reallocating public space. So I think that part of it is really exciting, and it just comes down to whether we collectively take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, when you were talking about, um, you know, cities, you know, and vision and all that, one of the the interesting things came up. I was uh, speaking at the, the Society of Automotive Engineers Government and Industry Meeting, and I was uh, speaking and moderating a panel, and that was actually one of the issues that came up, not necessarily with respect to cities, but I think with respect to regulating, you know, what, what our policies are going to be in the future for, for fuels um, and, for, and for vehicles, you know, what's that going, going to be overall? And I think that that was one of the themes that, you know, we kind of kept coming back to, again, back to again and again in the discussion is, you know, we really don't have a vision. What is our vision for our, for the future? And then how should the policy follow up out from that, from, you know, both the federal level and I guess, you know, there was more focus on, on the federal level. We were in Washington, but, um, but also then it would follow, you know, from the state and federal level as well as, you know, we've got this, you know, biofuels regulation and we've got this fuel economy standard and things are very, you know, uh, fuel and vehicle regulations are very sort of siloed off. But what's the, what's the, you know, sort of, and, and then that's fine, but what's the harmonious vision that we're sort of driving toward here? And, you know, we really don't have that, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so we so far been, you know, I've, I've been focused on cities. Uh, but yeah, if you pull back and think nationally, then it becomes a broader set of questions around sustainability of transportation systems. And so it's not only how do we move around cities, it's how do we move in between cities? How do we move freight? How do we, uh, you know, there's the whole air system and air travel and these things, when at least on the climate side, it's not easy to figure out how we're going to decarbonize all these things. And so, yes, there needs to be a kind of a national plan and, uh, we have the, we have many of the pieces, but we don't like you say we don't really have that national vision. And what is kind of interesting about let's say the Paris Agreement, which right now the U.S. is backing away from, but uh, mm-hmm. it does give this unifying concept that the whole world needs to be at least eighty percent lower in twenty fifty than it is today. If you're trying to prevent more than a two degree increase in temperature. And so that kind of concentrates the mind on, on what sorts of steps you need. And there are some kinds of measures that maybe looked good when the stakes weren't so high that now uh, don't seem, it's not clear that they're going to be part of the solution. A good example is natural gas. Natural gas is yeah. clean, cool, it's, it's good for air quality. But uh, do we want to transition part of our transportation system to natural gas, which isn't low enough carbon? to be part of the final solution. So it, it would be a transitional fuel. And I, you know, I think more and more people see it as eh, not worth it, you know, even though actually natural gas is very cheap right now, but, uh, yeah. and then there could, there could be ways to move on from natural gas to bio 
natural gas. But that's a very challenging pathway. So you begin to think about where do we want to be in 2050 and how do we get there? And you mentioned, I think, fuel economy improvements are an important. Yeah. You know, they're incremental, yeah. but they're an important part of that. Biofuels are likely to be an important part of that. We're really having trouble these days, I think, with biofuels, with understanding the net effects of using them. And they're not, they tend not to be cheap. So there's a lot of challenges. And I, and I think, you know, the United States isn't the only country that's struggling to have a comprehensive vision and plan in that regard. Yeah. You just talked about some key things, you know, fuel economy, biofuels, you know, there's, there's electric vehicles. I mean, you know, our zero emission vehicles. I mean, those really, you know, when you look at countries' plans, I mean, those tend to be among the top three, um, you know, sort of fuels and vehicles, that, that portion of transport. I mean, obviously they, there's, there's a, a discussion in, in, in uh, countries' plans about public transport and all that, but from the, the private side, I guess you could say, those are the top three, three strategies that are, are mentioned. You know, it, it's clear that, you know, we're not going to meet uh, those two C targets. And transport, as you mentioned, is a very difficult, it's maybe the hardest area, I think, to, to decarbonize. So, you know, what do you think, you know, and then I want to ask you something else about three revolutions, but what do, you, what do you think countries, what more are countries going to have to do? Because a lot of them are, you know, they are moving forward in terms of, or trying to move forward in terms of setting fuel economy standard policies. You've been very intimately involved in that area um, with the Global Fuel Economy Initiative. So you, you know very well, you know, what's, what's going on and what it takes to actually set a, set a fuel economy um, policy. So, you know, mm-hmm. they're doing that. They're doing biofuel standards, uh, which, as you mentioned, you know, is, is real challenging. There look, many are looking at zero emission vehicle um, policies. What more are our countries going to have to do to even try to um, further mitigate transport greenhouse gas emissions to even try to meet 2C targets? Well, I think you've kind of listed the main, you know, arrows in the in the quiver. Uh, there aren't that many other things. And one other to put out there is hydrogen and, and fuel cells. Yes, and that's right, right. Uh, technology. And it does have a couple of advantages over electricity. You can you can put more energy onto a vehicle with hydrogen than with electricity. And so for trucks, it could be, you know, for big trucks, especially long haul trucks, electricity is really problematic. You just aren't going to get the driving range you need. And it takes a long time to recharge. Whereas hydrogen is more like a liquid fuel. You can refuel fairly quickly and you could get a little bit longer range out of that. So I think that's something we're going to see uh, considered very seriously for trucks. Uh, we are also seeing some hydrogen fuel cell cars now. They're coming up a little bit, but it's a a very small scale right now. I think ultimately we just have to keep pushing on all these fronts. And the problem is we have to go faster. You know, we're just, we're running out of time. You know, as you say, it's almost looks impossible now to prevent warming beyond two degrees, but it's still something to try for. And uh, if if enough people want to uh, achieve it, we can achieve it. I think uh, part of it is individual lifestyles and behavior, but the bigger part is supporting uh, governments to take the bigger actions that we need. So what what are those? Well, for example, right now in in the United States, this administration is reviewing the light duty fuel economy standards and probably going to weaken them. And that's Mm -hmm. not consistent with where we need to go. If anything, we might want to tighten them further. 
they're pretty good on paper. I mean, that by 2025, vehicles will be much more efficient, which incidentally will save consumers an enormous amount of fuel cost. So it's a shame if we weaken those. But uh, on the truck side now, the United States has pretty strong uh, standards that are going to uh, also improve fuel economy of trucking out to 2025. And actually, interestingly, that's pretty widely supported by the trucking industry. There's not, there hasn't been much complaining, and they're not trying to reopen that with this administration. They're, they're you know, basically fine with this because they care that they're going to save a huge amount of fuel. So that's important. We do need to just figure out what things could be shifted to electricity or hydrogen you know, maybe we've got a few more years to play around and see what seems to work best, but then we're going to have to be ready to make some major investments. I do think freight and, and trucking in particular are a big area that we haven't figured out. And then... Oh, for sure. For sure. And then you're getting into almost like international systems, which is air travel and ocean travel. And uh, both of those are growing pretty rapidly. And both of those need dense liquid fuel so that those vessels or those airplanes can go a long distance. And I think that is where we're a little bit stuck. I mean, if liquid biofuels are a great solution, if uh, the, the quality isn't a problem, we can make the fuels, we have great technology now to make biofuels that are compatible, let's say with aircraft, very safe, but where are they coming from? And it tends to be uh, either feedstocks that are not really that sustainable or they come from the right kinds of feedstocks. They're very expensive. And, you know, the global agricultural system is so complex, we never can be quite sure what net effect we're having on, on greenhouse gas emissions when you take into account land use change. So a lot of governments have backed away from, from the, the bio, strong biofuel policies because so it's so uncertain. But we have to resolve that somehow in the mm-hmm. next let's mm-hmm. say, decade so we can really begin to figure out which direction we're going to move and, and go there. Yeah, I've been a big proponent because you're right. I mean, I call it biofuel uh, fatigue. I mean, fatigue has definitely uh, definitely set in for for many stakeholders and, and in particular for for many governments. But you know, I've been a big big proponent of really amping up or ramping up, um, you know, the the R and D because if you look at the the you know R and D spending, you know, it's really not that much. I mean, it's certainly Certainly not that, not as much as you know what we might see in you know other areas of um, of energy, um, you know maybe also in transport. Um, but we 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 really need that. You know we you know it's so for example, you know there's a lot of discussion about completely stripping out you know ARPA E and uh, DOE's EERE funding, and I just think wow that's a huge mistake <laughs> because. We yeah. need more funding yeah. than ever, not just for not just for you know for biofuels, but for you know it, it's these kinds of programs that you know yeah. that, that come up with those novel novel technologies where where the breakthroughs you know can be had. I mean, even Bill Gates has, has seen that and is putting his his money behind that. So mm-hmm. we really need the the R and D and um, you know and it's 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 really and the, the support and to be able to try things and and fail. You know, I mean, it's you know like all of that discussion with Solyndra, you know, years ago, it's like, you know, we need to be able to do R&D, to try things, to fail, you know, we need those to be able to yeah. sort of get to, but, um, you know, the appetite, yeah, no, I mean, in, at least in this country, doesn't seem to be there. Right. So anyway. Um, yeah, and I, I think, you know, sometimes you can, you can find that an administration's policies are not actually even aligned with what the public wants, right? And I, I think there's generally yeah. really strong support 
among Americans for you know a strong R and D program for uh, finding solutions to to these kinds of challenges, these energy challenges, and, and of course in many other spheres, medical. But um, yeah, it's it's never been that big a share of our spending. And you know, right now we're shifting toward even more military spending at a time when we have a lot of other challenges, and it just doesn't seem right to be cutting back on uh, this kind of R and D. And also, if you look at it from the point of view of how, from let's say for transportation sustainability, the amount of money that we collectively spend every year on our transportation systems is absolutely enormous. You know, it in yeah. the United States it's at least a trillion dollars a year. And so if we're not willing to spend more than a few billion to try to figure out how to improve the system, then then we're making a mistake of some kind. We need bigger investments in improving the system than we're than we're giving. Humans spend uh probably between five and ten trillion dollars a year on all the different aspects associated with travel. And wow. uh, so it the entrenched system takes an enormous amount of money to keep it going. You just think about new cars. You know, there's about a hundred million new cars sold every year with an average price around the world, maybe, you know, $25,000. That's right there, $2.5 trillion just for new cars. And then there's all the cost mm-hmm. of operating them and, and the systems. And then there's the truck side and everything else. So it's a lot of money. And, you know, if we thought of it that way and we just carved out some percentage of that, even if it were like two or 3% of that, to move us in a different direction and improve our sustainability and not to mention improve the quality of the systems, I think it would be huge, but we're not even willing to do that. Yeah. You know, it's almost like one comment and then the, and then the last question, but it's, you know what I feel like we need what's coming to my mind is, you know, like a Ross Perot with the, (laughs) you know, uh, those little charts, maybe not Ross Perot himself, but you know, the charts to actually, try and and um, educate the public because it's really clear from other studies that have been done by colleagues at, at, at UC Davis, you know, um, other organizations, like, you know, owners really aren't tuned in to, you know, like this issue, this, you know, total cost of ownership, for example, you know, well, it's, it's ultimately lower for the life of the vehicle for, for electric vehicles than it is for the internal combustion engine. Um, in many cases and, you know, and, and then of course, you know, yeah, everything you just said about what we're spending and consumers just, there's a general total lack of consciousness and awareness. It's almost like you need like a rock for us to sort of, you know, yeah. put that stuff out to people and raise the consciousness because they just aren't, they absolutely are not aware. And, um, you know, without awareness, you know, how can there be any, any change, you know? And that is hard. And there's so many areas where you could say that, right? It's hard for all of us to, to be uh, experts on everything, but somehow I think awareness raising part to this. So last question, um, going back to the, the three revolution uh, study. So what's the next step? So the study has, has been done. I think there either will be or there has been, um, you know, a conference um, this month, February 2018. So what's intent, what's the next steps and, you know, what's intended for, for future research um, in this area? Well, first of all, that study is available on the UC Davis website and, uh, mm-hmm. my name. and I'll link it. Okay. Thanks. And there's, and there's other work that we're doing that relates and we do have a conference coming up this month. And I think it all points toward, we have some sense of where we would think this all should go. But the question is, trying to track it. Where is it? Where are things going? What are these trends uh, looking like? And ultimately, how 
how do people behave and, and how do they see these things? Um, my own work, uh, I'm, I'm involved now in looking at situational comparisons. So we call them use cases, but uh, under what kind of conditions might people share a ride? Under what conditions would people tend to leave their own car home and order the Uber or stop owning a car? And so you can add up the costs of, of these different uh, choices that people might make, including all sorts of things. But ultimately, that let's say if it's Uber, that result in this is the price that you pay per mile. It's because of the cost of the driver and the cost of the, of the overhead of the company and the cost of the vehicle and, and operating that vehicle. So then it lets you play where, if you, let's say, if you remove the driver because it's an automated vehicle, but it's a more expensive vehicle, what is that going to cost? And compare across these different situations. But the, I think the, the really interesting part of all that is to get away from the out-of-pocket costs and think about uh, what we might call hedonic costs, these things that matter to us that you can imagine as costs, but we're not paying for them. So the convenience of having your own car in your driveway and you go out and you don't even have to think about it, it's there for you versus having to press the button on your phone to have a vehicle show up and there might be a little bit of uncertainty with that. On the other hand, the, the benefit of that you're now getting chauffeured, right? And somebody's taking you door to door to where you want to go. You don't have to think about parking your car. You don't have, mm -hmm. have to worry as much about traffic. And so those are some of the great features of, of taking a, you know, a ride hailing choice. There's the question of sharing. Are you willing to get in the car with a stranger? Are you willing to get in the car with a stranger? And there's no driver. So there's not even a third party there. If it's electric vehicles, are you are you how concerned are you about uh, recharging it or going out in the world and finding charging? There's a we've we've come up with a list of ten or twelve of these things that we think are really potentially very important, and we know very little about them now. We know very little about how people think about these things, and some of them are new. We don't have a, a way to to measure the way people take these things into account, so we have to ask them. So there's a lot of work going on now in terms of interviewing people and, and doing survey work, and some of it's hypothetical, but I think that'll be a big theme at this conference uh, at UC Davis in, in, later in the month, and uh, we'll see more papers coming out that try to understand the behavioral aspect of, as these choices evolve, and you have more opportunities to uh, you know, either be in a driverless car or it's a, a shared situation. At what point do people really shift their lifestyles? And I think nobody really knows yet. You know, there are people who think, oh, we're all going to give up car ownership because it's going to be so cheap and so ubiquitous to just press the button on your phone to get that ride. Um, and well, for example, I am very skeptical of that. I think there's a huge me too, me too. You know, innate, mm -hmm. innate desire to own one's own car, right? And I don't think that's going to mm -hmm. go away. Anymore. So. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, you know, the F-150, you know, isn't the, the number one selling vehicle and trucks aren't 60% of the market because, you know, because they're cheap, you know, it's, um, right. you know, it's, it's not just, and it's also not just the utility of owning the, the F-150, you know, it is the, you know, there's that pride of ownership, those sort of those, those psychological factors, attachment, whatever you want to call it that is, you know, really comes into play. And so, you know, I'm always, when people start talking about things like total cost of ownership and it's going to be cheaper and, you know, these, these kinds of things, I'm very, I also am very skeptical because that's not what it's like out there in the real world. And the other, the other point before we close is I'm really um, interested in continuing to, you know, to follow this and follow the, 
the three revolution and actually see what comes out of this this part of the study, sort of looking at consumer behavior. I kind of wonder if if people themselves are even, you know, like when you start asking in these questions, you know, do they sit and have conscious thoughts about it? Or are they just kind of like do, you know, so, you know, they don't ask them, you know, those kinds of things. So it'd be interesting to to uh-huh. see, you know, what do consumers really, really think about, you know, uh, this right. stuff, you know, will you give them pause, you know, in, in some of the questions yeah. that you're going to ask them or that you are asking them. So, yeah, I think that's true. And I think we already have enough uh, of this kind of work to have a strong sense that there are groups within society and some of them are delineated by age or income uh, lifestyle and, and life phase, but there's other other things too. You know, there's the early adopter crowd, and then there's the very careful late adopter crowd, and there there's all kinds of different subgroups. So, you know, it won't be monolithic. Different people are going to do different things, and and we do see that young people are much more likely to try new things, and and they they're not wedded to their cars. They're you know urbanites that uh, often that are happy to just press the app on their phone and not ever have to think about driving. So it's it's mm-hmm very, you know, it's going to evolve. And, and as these people get older and more of them come along and some of us old fossils die off like me, um, I think we're going to see <laughs> not, maybe not quite revolutions, but relatively rapid evolutions in the way people think about their travel. Uh, it's going to be fascinating. And um, yeah, the more we can try to understand it uh, early on, let's say, the better. But uh, yeah, it's it's going to be about trying to Talk to people and, like you say, sort of actualize them, get people thinking about things in a way maybe they haven't done before. All right. We'll end it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Lou so much for being on the show today and for a really fun and interesting conversation. And I do hope uh, that you come back as more research continues to evolve and, um, and develop. Thank you, Tammy. So please do us a favor before you go today. Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping this show visible so that other people can discover it and hopefully also benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on future fuels and vehicles issues, sign up for my biweekly newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks again. Thanks again.